to open your Bible there, if you will, please. Psalm 25. And Psalm 25 is the first of what we call the alphabet psalm. Uh, that means this psalm, each verse of this psalm, begins with a different, alpha, different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So what you have is the first verse in the Hebrew would start with the letter Aleph, the second verse would start with the letter Bet, the second, third, le third verse would start with the letter Gimel, and so forth, all the way down through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And as a result of this structure, uh, A, B, C, it's sort of like if you would write uh, something down and you put A, B, C, D, and these are each one bullet points. Many commentators say that this psalm really does not have any uh, coherent structure. It's just like a, a laundry list of events. And it's put in this alphabetical order with each letter, each verse starting with a Hebrew letter, for the purpose of memory, helping the people who read it memorize it better, memorize the list. But as I was looking through the psalm, I, and I think anybody who really looks through the psalm carefully will see that the psalm does have a structure. It has an outline. It's not a laundry list. And here's how I'm going to divide the psalm. And I think this will help you uh, understand it clearly. Verses 1 through 6, 1 through 7, verses 1 through 7, you have a prayer. And you'll notice each one of those verses is directed toward God. Okay. Then verses 8 through 10, you have a meditation, basically a little teaching. And that's part 2. And then part 3 is, consists of one verse, and that's verse 11. And that's his second prayer. And you'll notice that that's addressed to God. And then verses 12 through 15, you have a meditation again, a little teaching. And then verses 16 through 20. Two, you have this third prayer. You got prayer, meditation, prayer, meditation, and then finally the last prayer. And I think that lays out the structure of the book. So let's uh, let's begin to read and let's look at his first prayer. Look how he opens this psalm. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Now, back in the 70s, there was a great revival that was sweeping throughout this country. Uh, part of it was the charismatic revival, part of it was the Jesus movement, remember that? And in the midst of this revival that was taking place, there was also a music revival that was going on. And all kinds of songs were being produced during this time, and this is when uh, the Jesus movement out on the West Coast produced, and Chuck Smith's church produced uh, some of the great praise music. And also there was a movement of scripture song. Certain people felt that God was leading them to put music to these, to certain verses. And this was one of the psalms that was put to music. And I remember it well because I would sing it many times at the different meetings I would go to. And uh, if you just look at the psalm, and they would do this in the King James Version, here's how it would go. Unto you, O Lord. And then the people would sing in response. And then it would say, I lift up my soul unto you, O God. I lift up my soul, O my God. 
I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Now, let me show you how it would go. I'm going to sing the first part, and then I want you just to echo it. Now, watch how it goes. This way you'll get to see how, how, how the music revival works. Under you, O Lord. I lift up my soul. Under you, O Lord. I lift up my soul. Oh my God. I trust in you. Now all of us. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. That was a great way of learning scripture. Well, that's not worth the class. <laughs> now, here, now, they had better singers, though. We, had, we could have brought someone else up and done it right. I understand. Now, for those of you who were here, who were here last week, I want to ask you: Do you see any connection with Psalm 25 to Psalm 22, based on what we just said? And the answer is, yes, of course you do, right? You say, well, what is that? And the answer is, in Psalm 25, 4, remember what David said? Lift up your, what? Heads. Oh, you guys remember it. So lift up, lift up, lift up your heads, you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. He was saying, he wasn't talking about gates and doors, he was talking about people. And uh, if you want God to be in your presence, you come to Him and lift up your head boldly. And uh, don't be ashamed. You lift, when you lift your head hang down, you're ashamed. But when you lift it up, you're not ashamed. And now what David is doing in Psalm 25 is he is, in a sense, presenting himself as exhibit A of a person who lifts up his head to the Lord. So now look at that. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul... Oh my God, I trust in you. Now that's a parallel. The lift up your soul is the what? Trust. It's that confidence in God. And so David says, I'm an example. I have confidence in you. Now look what the prayer is. It's let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. If he's trusting God, his prayer is, a cry for deliverance. Don't let my enemies, what? Triumph over me. So this is a cry for deliverance. And that's why he says, don't let me be ashamed. Because if the enemies triumph over David in Israel, and he's been trusting in God, he's going to be put to shame. God didn't come through. The God of Israel didn't come through. David's going to be ashamed. Remember when the prophets of Baal, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, call out to your God. If he answers by fire, we know that he's real. And guess what? They cried, they cut themselves, and guess what? Nothing happened. They walked away with the tail between their legs. They were ashamed. David says, Lord, I'm crying out to you. I'm trusting you. Boldly coming to you. I'm lifting up my head to you. Don't, don't let me down. <laughs> Don't uh, let me be shamed before all the, the nations because it will also bring shame upon you. Does that make sense? Now look at verse 3. Indeed, now look at this. This is the next part of the prayer. Let no one who waits on you be ashamed. 
So now he not only prays for himself, he prays for the whole nation. And he's including everybody, all the Jews in this prayer. That Lord, if you don't come to the aid of the nation, as our enemies come against us in battle, and this is this is one of those battle hymns again, where that we've seen just about every week, that the enemies are on the verge of attacking the city, and he says, if you don't come and deliver us, then the whole nation will be ashamed. And then he says at the end of verse three, uh, let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. In other words, Lord, I don't shame us, shame the enemy. The enemy's trusting in his God. Lord, you defeat the enemy, they will be ashamed. Don't let us be ashamed. Now, notice in verse 3, he says, Indeed, let no one who waits on you. Do you see that word, wait? Now, this says something to us about these prayers, doesn't it? David's praying, but guess what you might have to do? You may have to wait. God does not answer our prayers instantaneously or immediately at all times. If he did, that would, there would be no trust involved. But trust and faith involves believing God and waiting at times. And so often what we do as Christians, uh, and even as a church, is we pray and we expect God to intervene immediately, and we don't persevere in that faith. That is a major mistake. So God doesn't operate on our timetable. He operates on his timetable. And he operates. Uh, and he comes and answers the prayers. Sometimes just in the nick of time. Now look at verse 4. David says, Show me your ways, O Lord. And this is a parallel. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. And teach me. So now what he's asking for is guidance. And you see that word paths, and we've seen the word paths many times in the previous Psalms, haven't we? So now he's saying, Lord, in the midst of what's happening here in this nation, I need your guidance. I need to know what you want me to do. And then he gives us the reason. He says, for, or because, in verse uh, 5, in the verse 5, because you are the God of my salvation, and on you I wait 24 minutes. No, I wait all day. So now look at that. So here's the reason that David uh, has this assurance that God is going to deliver him and God's going to guide him because God is a God of my salvation. He has this personal relationship with God. And he waits. He waits. If I told you I'd meet you somewhere at a certain place, and I didn't show up right when you expected, hopefully you would wait, knowing that I'm going to keep my word, and this is just from a human perspective, and if I'm late, something has hindered me. Now, God's never late. He's on his timetable. But in a sense, you don't know when he's going to answer, but he has said, I will answer. He didn't tell you when he would answer, but he says, I will answer, then guess what you need to do? You need to wait. Now, why are you going to wait? Because he's the God of your <coughs> salvation. In the past, has he delivered you? Yes. Will he deliver you again? Yes. Will he shame you in front of your enemy? No. He will protect his name. And he will protect his people. So that's what David is saying. Then look at verse 6. He says this. 
Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness. This is what David wants God to remember. This is a positive. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies. Now, if you remember something, that means these things happened when? In the past. Okay. So remember, Lord, your tender mercies. That means when you showed your loving mercy and loving kindness in the past. Remember that. Look what he says. For they are what? From old. Showing that he's talking about the past. Now I believe he's talking about a particular event. I believe that uh, David is saying, uh, God, your tender mercies and your loving kindness can be traced back to the covenant that you made with Abraham. In other words, when God took Abraham out from among the nations, God plucked him out. Abraham didn't deserve that. Abraham and all the nations deserve to be judged. But God took Abraham out, and he said, From you I will make a new nation, Israel, and I will show you tender mercy, and I will show you loving kindness. Lord, this is the agreement that you made unilaterally. We didn't ask for this. This is what you said you were going to do. Now come through. I'm going to wait, because based on that covenant relationship you have with your people, uh, I know that you will answer me, and you will teach me, and you will deliver me. So that's what he wants him to remember. Now look at verse 7. This is what he doesn't want him to remember. Do not remember my sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. So now... This deals with David's past transgression. And since we're dealing with the covenant, David is saying, and don't remember the times I broke the covenant. You know, God gave the covenant, didn't he? And he gave them some ethical rules to follow. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Did David ever do anything like that? You know? Yes, David has done all these things. David in the past has not trusted the Lord. There are times when David went to battle, instead of trusting God, he slipped and he said, well, how many men do we have? How many do they have? You're not sure how many we have? Take a sense of Ah, we're strong now. Yeah, well, we'll be able to feed them with the men we have now. Or, boy, we may have to make an alliance with some foreign power and join up with them and we'll be able to now defeat our enemy. There were times that David has failed. And he says, don't remember these events that took place in my youth. And oftentimes, sins are as a result of youthful indiscretions. And he just says, don't remember that. Don't remember when I failed you. Just remember the covenant that you made with me in the nation. Now, if I ask you to fill in that situation, if you said to God, God, don't remember the sins of my youth, what would they be? Fill in this blank. When I was 16, or when I was 18, when I was 22, when I was 25, I did, now fill it in, you know what you did. The Lord don't remember. <laughs> Just remember that you have established a covenant based on grace and forgiveness. And if you can do that, you can get on with your life and you can trust God. And you won't live with guilt. So David says, don't remember my past transgressions, please. Don't do that. And that's very important. And then he says this in verse 7. According to your mercy, remember what? Yeah, remember me. 
Don't remember my sins. <laughs> remember me. And he says this. Here's the reason. Because I'm good all the time. No, he didn't say For your goodness sake, oh Lord. It's because God is good. And this is one of the themes that David has. That God is good. And God is good all the time. And he's established a covenant with Israel. And he'll keep it. Even when we break it, he'll remember the agreement and the covenant that he uh, made with us, and he will extend to us mercy and loving kindness. So that's section one, and that's prayer one. Now we come to the meditation. That verse verses 8 through 10. So now look what he said. These are just truths that he just passes out for his uh, singers to contemplate on when they're singing. Number one, good and upright is the Lord. There's a first principle that David's learned about God. God is good and he's upright. That links back to verse 7, for your goodness sake. Uh, God's character is that he's a good God and he is an upright God. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. And that basically means that because God is good, he even reaches out to people who are bad. Tries to bring them in under his covenant where they can find forgiveness of sins. Or maybe he's just talking about Christians or people that are covenant people like the Old Testament Jews that sin. And God, because he is upright and he's good, he teaches them, he reaches out, and he tries to teach them in the way, the way of truth. The humble, verse 9, he guides in justice. And notice who God guides in justice. The humble, the meek. The humble and the meek, he teaches his way. Now wait a second. That almost sounds like a contradiction. Who does he teach his way to? People who are humble. Who does he teach up in verse 8 his way? Sinners. Verse 8, who's he teaching his way? Sinners. Here, who does he teach in his way? Upright. Now here's the thing could be a, a contradiction or he teaches, teaches both. The bottom line is if you're going to be teachable, even as a sinner, guess what you have to do? You have to humble yourself before the Lord. You have to repent of your sin. You have to bow the knee and recognize that God is the one who knows the truth. He knows the way. And so I don't see that as a contradiction at all. And then verse 10. All the paths of the Lord. Not some of them. All the paths, all the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth. If God leads you in his path and teaches you in his ways, his ways involve mercy and truth. He'll never lead you astray. This is one way you know that God's leading you. What he's leading you to do is to show mercy and leading you in truth. So this is David's little teaching and uh, those of us who follow his way if we follow in the paths of the Lord, then we will be what? Merciful. And we will be people of truth. Okay? Now we come to, and then it says, uh, end of verse 10, I didn't see that. Uh, to such as keep his covenant and his testimony. We have another radio. That's okay. okay, are you ready? Next prayer. Verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. 
Now that's his second prayer, right in the middle of this whole psalm. Does that look familiar to anything? Like anything? Looks something like verse 7 in the verse 7. For your goodness sake, now look at verse 11. For your name's sake. God's name is his sake means his character. Because of who you are, and we know that God is good. For your name's sake, O oh Lord, here's what I want you to do. Pardon my iniquity. For it is great. Not, it's not this. On the basis of my merits, O oh Lord, pardon my iniquity. For God's, for the basis of who God is, that David asked that his iniquity be pardoned. And he says, his iniquity is great. We know about pardons because we know how the government works in America. Uh, governors pardon people. Presidents pardon people. Every president of the United States on the last day in office, guess what he does? He pardons people. And they are people who have done some bad things. But they've made big political contributions. <laughs> and the president... Not on the basis of the fact that he's good, does he pardon the person. It's on the basis of the fact that they've done something for him, and now he's paying them back. But we haven't done anything. See, we've, our, our iniquity is, is large, every one of us, in thought and deed. But on the basis of who God is, that he's a God who's established a covenant, and on that basis he's loving and merciful, David says, Lord, even though my sin is great, pardon me, exonerate me, vindicate me, forgive me. So that's the second prayer. Now, from verses 12 through 15, we have the next meditation. And he says, Who is the man that fears the Lord? And he asks that question. And then, instead of trying to tell you what that man's character is, he tells you the results. He says, Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. Okay, now here's what it says. Let's put it a different way. Let me switch in verse 12, the question and the statement around. Let's make the second line a question. Who does God teach? Who does God teach in the way he chooses? Now go to the verse, beginning of verse 12 and just turn it into a statement. It's the man who does what? Fears the Lord. The person who is teachable is the person who fears the Lord. Because if I fear the Lord, I, he says, and I fear the Lord, I'm going to listen to what he has to say. I'm the one that's teaching. And so that's what he's saying. The teachable person is the one who fears the Lord. And then in verse 13 he says, He himself shall dwell in prosperity. The person who fears the Lord is going to dwell in prosperity. Uh, another translation is ease. And his descendants shall inherit the earth. And so we see that the person who uh, fears the Lord the person that God teaches and the person who fears the Lord is the person that God blesses. There are certain benefits from fearing the Lord. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's why you're teachable. And that person who is teachable and then follows the Lord in the past is the person who will prosper and that's the person whose children and descendants will then inherit the earth. And so it actually goes across generations. If you are a godly person, you fear the Lord, you're teachable, you're humble, uh, you want God to forgive you, you uh, are not afraid to trust God and wait, 
this has ramifications for your children and their children and generations to come. So just yesterday I was watching on uh, PBS. I was working on this. <laughs> I was sort of finishing this up. And, uh, it was about genes and the genome project and how genes affect generation after generation after generation. And then there was one on the epigenome concept, which is not only do your genes affect generations to come, but the environment has an effect on your genes. And uh, that can affect generations to come. What you do, choices you make. And here's the person that fears the God who fears God. If you're a God-fearing person, God is going to not only bless you, but He's going to bless those that come after you in your family. And so this is a, a great truth. And then verse 14 says, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him. Now there's the fear again. So here's another benefit. Guess what you get if you fear God? The secret of the Lord. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him. And now He tells us what that secret is. <coughs> he will show, He will display, He will show them His what? Covenant. That's why I think this is all deals with covenant. Uh, God's secret is that He chose one man, Abraham, and through that man He was going to bless the nations of the world. That's the secret. The Gentiles would get saved. But God's just not concerned with the Jews. He's concerned with everyone. Paul calls it a mystery. Remember that? The mystery that God actually has grafted in the Gentiles. That's a mystery. And that He has a plan for redemption of the entire world. Uh, hidden from those who are blinded. It's a secret. You can't know it unless it's revealed to you. And God has revealed it through the prophets. And He's revealed it through the Scriptures. And in times past, in the old days, He spoke to us and he revealed His secrets to the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us once and for all through His Son, Jesus Christ. And for in Him, all the knowledge and the understanding of the universe and the wisdom of the universe dwell and are embodied. And Jesus has the full understanding. And Jesus comes along and He preaches this good news of the kingdom of God that the He's going to redeem the world. And uh, it is a secret that deals with grace because left to your own surmisings, if I said to a person that's lost out there, well, uh, on what basis could you, quote, be saved or whatever, uh, or have any hope of ever seeing God one day? They say, well, I'm trying to keep the golden rule, or I'll try to do this, or I'll try to be kinder, and I'll try to... And it's all about them, what they have to do. And the secret that God has is that no, salvation isn't based on what you do. It's based on grace. God's the one that took the initiative and reached down and pulled Abraham out. And set him on solid ground. It's all grace. It's all of mercy. It is the message that Peter and Paul say that the angels desire to look into. They don't understand grace. When the angels fell, was there forgiveness for him? When Lucifer fell, was there forgiveness for him? Did God show all the one-third of the angels grace that fell? It 
It's a message of the angels on the earth. Peter says they bend their crank their neck and they bend down and they, they desire to look into this message. This message of grace. It's an amazing thing. David says, Lord, uh, the secret of the Lord is given to those that fear him. And he will show them his covenant. So that's the secret of the covenant. Now verse 15, he says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. Pretty uh, impressive statement there. He says, I'm constantly looking toward the Lord, which means I'm constantly trusting the Lord. That's how that psalm started. I lift up my soul, I'll trust in that. And then he says this. This is a great statement. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of now his eyes are fixed. Where are they? That's where his eyes are. Where's his feet? They're in the neck. <laughs> uh, see, you can be a Christian, and it doesn't mean you don't end up getting entangled in the neck. There are traps, and there are temptations, and there are enemies out there that are trying to ensnare you. But David knows because his eyes are ever before the Lord. Verse fifteen. He says, "My." In fact, he. The word for there in verse 15 gives you a reason why his eyes are toward the Lord. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, and here's why I'm always looking toward the Lord, because he in the future shall what? Pluck my feet out. If I get in trouble, I know he'll help me. But if I don't have my eyes before the Lord, face toward him, I'm in real trouble. That means I'm not trusting myself, and then God said, well, get yourself out of the net. And that's what happens to many of us. So, that's why he looks to the Lord, and that's why we should look to the Lord. Remember what he said? Don't remember my sins in the past. Remember the covenant. How do I know God will get me out? Because he's established a covenant with us, based on mercy and grace. And if we fear God, then we enter into that covenant. We're his. Would you get your children out of debt if they got into it? Of course you would. Why? Because they're your children. Well, God will too. And so David realizes that. He realizes the relationship. He says, so I always keep my eyes toward the Lord because I know when it comes to me getting out of some sort of trap, God will be there to, to help me, whether it's self-imposed trap or whether it's you know, the enemies coming in against Israel in battle. So that's the second section. That's his teaching section. Now he goes to his final prayer, verses 16 through 22. So let's look at the last prayer. He says to God, Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me. Now this is interesting, isn't it? In verse 15, he says, where's, where's his eyes? Toward the Lord. Now guess what he asked the Lord to do? Turn toward him. He said, I've turned toward you. Now you pay attention to me. See? Uh, well, when would he want him to pay attention to me? Turn yourself to me and what? Have mercy on me. Uh, like when I'm in the net? Yeah, like that. Uh, for I am, look, here's why I want you to turn your eyes toward me. Here's why I want you to come and rescue me and have mercy on me. For I am desolate and afflicted. Uh, I'm desolate. I'm alone. I'm afflicted. I'm hurting. Uh, here's a, a person that's hurting, uh, alone, but not without hope. Because he knows that God will keep the covenant and God will come 
and turned his eyes. Remember in Psalm 22 when David said, why have you forsaken me? And God basically said what? I've forsaken you. By the end of Psalm 22, he realized. Do you remember that? Well, David now says, Lord, uh, I've got these problems, and I need you to turn your eyes toward me. Look at verse 17. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. He's got big problems, and they're growing. They're not getting any smaller. They're getting bigger. And uh, things aren't getting better. They're getting worse. And so his prayer is, Lord, these troubles are getting larger. Get me out of my distresses, or another way of saying it, I'll talk to you now. Look on my afflictions. If David has his eyes to God, toward God, now he wants God to have his eyes toward him. He says, look on my affliction and on my pain and forgive my sins. This is the third time David has asked God to forgive his sins. So evidently, sin is plaguing David's mind at this point. And he may have this false guilt about things that happened to him in the past. He keeps coming back and he's wondering, are these things that are happening to me right now the result of my sins in the past? If it is, Lord, forgive my sins and take this affliction and this pain away from me. And he says, forgive all my sins. And in verse 19 he says, and now I want you to look at somebody else. Don't just look at me. Uh, consider the enemies. For they are many. Uh, check out the enemies over there. That nation is ready to invade our country. Uh, consider them, Lord. Uh, and why? Because there are many. And David is basically saying, if you don't step into this thing and consider the situation I'm in with these enemies, I'm not going to make it because there's a lot of them. So David uh, has many problems. He seems to have many sins, because there are many, and uh, he has many enemies. So he's in trouble. And now, hey, look how he describes his enemies. They hate me with cruel hate. Uh, these are people that want to destroy David. These aren't people within David's government. These are probably the leaders of different nations that are just trying to destroy Israel and take over David's throne. So here's what David prays. Keep my soul, doesn't mean soul in the sense of our spirits, but guard my life. The word soul in the Old Testament, think of the word life. Guard my life. Now don't let me get killed, in other words. And, verse 20, deliver me. Does this sound familiar in the end of verse 20? Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. If I put my trust in you and we lose this war, this battle, I'm going to be ashamed because I've proclaimed that you are the God. You are uh, the Lord Sabaoth. You're the Lord of hosts. You're the Lord of deliverance. So don't let me be ashamed. It sort of harkens back to verse 8 and also verse, verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 21, he says this, Let integrity and uprightness preserve me. Now, we've seen that word uprightness. We saw that God is upright back in verse 8. So now he says in verse 21, Let integrity and uprightness preserve me. Is he talking about God's integrity? Or is he talking about his integrity? Well, we don't know. But whatever it is, 
He wants to uh, be preserved and not die. Uh, but look what he says at the end of verse 21. Because I wait for you. This is the third time David says he's going to wait. He asked God for a prayer, but guess what he says? I'll wait. I'll wait till it's answered. He says that in verse 3, verse 5, and now verse 21. And I want you to know that we must not stop trusting God. We need to wait for the answer. God's time. We need to persevere in faith. If we don't do that, then we are doing something far less And then he finishes his last prayer with these words in verse 22, which I think is very interesting. This is how he concludes his message, his song. Redeem Israel, O God, out of their troubles. Now what's happened here? What's happening here? All the way up to verse 21, who's he been praying for? Himself. Except over in verse 3. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. So now what he's doing is he, what he asked for himself, deliverance and protection, he now asks for the entire nation. And this is where I think Christians oftentimes make mistakes. The scripture calls upon us to pray for our nation. And what we end up doing is we usually complain about our country. Or complain about our church. Whatever the situation is, a larger group of people. When in reality, we should be praying for them. But guess what? We don't pray for the nation. We complain about the country. And we pray about it for ourselves. It's all about us. We make ourselves the center of the universe. But David makes sure that when you, when the nation and the people of Israel sing this song in the tabernacle and surrounding the tabernacle at night as the families are sitting there in their tents and they sing that this song that they realize this song is not all about David. It's really about David as the leader of the nation, but it's about the nation. And so it's important that we pray for our nation. Next week we'll pick up at Psalm 26 where he says, Vindicate me, O Lord. And then uh, we'll close out our psalms for the summer with Psalm 27. And then after that we'll have a short New Testament study and then go into the Holy Word. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm that is, uh, lifts us up and tells us how we should relate to you, that we should boldly come to the throne of grace. Trusting you, but not demanding that you answer on our time table, but on your schedule. Help us, Lord, to be those that fear you. We are the ones that will be guided, and we are the ones to whom the secret of the universe is revealed. And we're the ones whom you will prosper, and our families will get the benefits as a result. Help us to realize, Lord, that righteousness exalts a nation. Uh, help us to realize that righteousness exalts the soul as well. And that because we have entered into a relationship with you, Lord, we should indeed live like you are a loving father and we are your obedient children. Help us to learn this truth. Christ's name we pray.